It's summertime and time for the 94th QuackCast. I'm doing this on the front porch, so you may hear the random car go by, or probably some of the damn dogs in the neighborhood barking, but it's summer, and I do not want to spend my podcasting time indoors. So there may well be extraneous sounds for this 94th QuackCast, the real QuackCast, the award-winning QuackCast. And you may hear the timer go off. I do have a recipe for the world's greatest peach cobbler cooking in the oven. But for now, we'll move on with the 94th QuackCast, Vital Signs. As I have mentioned in the past, almost all of my practice is inpatient medicine, doing infectious disease consults in acute care hospitals. I only spend three hours a week in the outpatient clinic, so I have a skewed perception of medicine and disease. The patients I see are sick, really sick, often trying to die, and are a complicated collection of abnormal labs and deranged physiology. I remember finishing my residency thinking that a potassium of 2.8, a hemoglobin of 9.8, or a bilirubin of 4.5 wasn't all that bad, losing track of normal physiology amongst all the medical pathology. I never did lose track of normal vital signs. Pulse, respiration, blood pressure, and temperature. Like trying to be the fifth beetle, over the years other values have vied to become the fifth vital sign, pain level, or so too saturation, but none have the importance of the fab four. I can live without pain, but I can't live long if other vital signs are abnormal for extended periods of time. Watching the vital signs return to normal is often an important variable that signifies the patient is improving. Quote, fever is the mighty engine which nature brings into the world for conquest of her enemies. End quote. Thomas Sydenham, 1666. Hmm, 666, I wonder... Of course, I have an inordinate interest in fevers, their cause, their pattern, and their treatment. Fevers lead to consults, and while I say my job is often me find bug, me kill bug, me go home, more often it is me find cause of fever, me treat cause of fever, fever goes away, me go home. I like the me go home part. One aspect of fever I harp on year after year, and where I'm continually ignored, is the importance of not treating a fever. It is estimated that the fever response is 400 million years old. How do they know that? Got me. Most molecular techniques are sufficiently advanced technology indistinguishable from magic as far as I'm concerned. All I know is they were not measuring rectal temperatures in Tyrannosaurus rex. Every creature that can make a fever will make a fever when infected. All wings of the immune system function better at 102 than 98.2. Yes, 98.2 is the average temperature, not 98.6. But in a calorie-poor environment that most creatures have lived in, if we maintained our core temperature at 102, we would all have starved to death. It is also quite remarkable how many pathogens cannot grow at 98.2, much less 102. Being above ambient temperature protects us against thousands of molds and bacteria. Almost every animal in human study demonstrates that outcomes are worse if you treat a fever. Increase in mortality and or complications 
although it is not always clear if it is the anti-inflammatory or the antipyretic effects of the medications that are being used that lead to the poorer outcomes. You cannot find studies to demonstrate benefit in treating infections by suppressing the fevers. It is always a bad thing. There are, of course, times where you may want to treat a fever. The patient does not have the physiologic reserve from cardiac or pulmonary disease to tolerate the metabolic stress, or they have had a stroke or heart attack, or the fevers are high enough to cause damage. In the hospital, there are multiple factors that should be considered before whipping out the acetaminophen for increased temperature. Fevers are an important involved response to infection, and if you inhibit fevers in your patients, you do so at their peril. If a patient had a pulse of 120 or a respiratory rate of 25, you wouldn't slow it down to normal, would you? No. You would treat the underlying cause of the tachycardia or tachypnea and watch the vital signs normalize as evidence that your clinical intervention is effective. The same should be true of fevers. Although I know all too well that most people expect fevers to be treated, and no one will believe you if you suggest that fevers should be allowed to run free. Run free, fever, run free. I have just finished listening to The Stand, a Stephen King novel at the moment, and most of the people of the world have died from a biologically engineered super flu. However, everyone in this book who gets a fever seems to take aspirin, so maybe it was the aspirin that helped kill everyone off. It certainly has been hypothesized that aspirin use helped kill off all the people in the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic. So it would not be the first time that aspirin may have contributed to influenza deaths. In my household, my children do not get antipyretics when they are febrile, and I am the one at home taking care of them. And as a result, they're calm and quiet. Febrile kids are quiet kids. Then I go off to work, my wife takes over, and she treats the fever. She so hates to see the kids suffer. As the French say, no man is a hero to his butler. Not that my wife is my butler, but you get the idea. My home is a microcosm of the hospital. If you have a fever, either let it go untreated and you will probably get better faster than if you treated the fever, or find and reverse the underlying cause. The same concepts apply to the other vital signs, such as pulse and respiratory rate, as long as the patients can cope with the physiologic demands of the tachypnea or tachycardia. The autonomous nervous system is quite a wonder and will compensate through a remarkable range of derangements to keep the vital signs stable at a level that prevents death, although all physiology has its limits. I have seen some remarkable derangements in physiology over the years, some of which I would have thought incompatible with life and would have been fatal without ICU intervention. Most of the time, from mild to moderate illness, the self-regulating systems perform remarkably well, keeping the body running along, compensating for whatever pathophysiology is afflicting us. And fortunately, we do not have to think about it. Breathing is a perfect example. It is a good thing that breathing is on autopilot, except for those with Dean's curse, or very in-stage lung disease, and we do not need to think about our breathing. Helping with acid-base balance and gas exchange, out goes the bad air, CO2, in comes the good, oxygen, 
We breathe until we breathe our last. I think that's a Regina Spector lyric. I just saw her in concert last week. In the immortal words of Mr. Burns, excellent. Many illnesses will alter how we breathe, both the rate and the pattern. And sometimes you can get a hint as to the underlying disease if you know some pathophysiology and watch the patient breathe. It is kind of fun to walk into a room and see a small breathing or a chain stokes respiration and think, ooh, I know what's going on. Being under almost total autonomic control, there is not much people can do about their breathing for any significant period of time. You can neither breathe fast nor hold your breath without soon giving in to the metabolic demands of equilibrium. Let's see, what am I going to talk about here? One, discovered by a lone genius. Check. The one true cause of all disease. Check. The one treatment for all disease. Check. Almost completely divorced from known physiology. Check. Lots of positive testimonials. Minimal clinical trials for efficacy. Check. Ironically, his work has never been fully accepted by his colleagues. Check. A lack of understanding of the word ironic. Check. Am I talking about chiropractic? Reiki? Therapeutic touch? Homeopathy? Man, there are so many lone geniuses who discover the cause and treatment of disease to the benefit of mankind, yet are unproven and ignored by the closed-minded medical industrial complex. Or is this scam pareidolia on my part? It's not quite Robert Park's Seven Warning Signs of Bogus Science, excellent article by the way, but certainly in its spirit. Now somehow, I got on the mailing list for one of the most impressive Bass-Ackwards alt therapies I have yet to find. The Breathing Center in Woodstock, New York keeps sending me emails suggesting, among other things, that I spend my vacation breathing away my medical problems with the official representation of the Clinica Butecki Moscow, home of the Butecko breathing technique. Yeah, I know, my Russian pronunciation stinks on ice. Just watch me embarrass myself with French. So I'm going to pronounce Butecko wrong every single time. I'm certainly not going to be broadcasting for the Olympics either, so you're going to have to live with it. So let's go through the list, shall we? One, lone genius. You betcha. Konstantin Butyeko was a Russian physician who is evidently dying of severe hypertension, oddly painful, and more likely panic attacks in the early 1950s. One night, he was contemplating his own mortality during what sounds like a panic attack when he noted his breathing was deep and rapid through his mouth. He slowed his breathing down and immediately felt better. He tried this on an asthma patient who was having an asthma attack and, and by slowly decreasing the breathing rate, the asthma attack subsided. Eureka! Chronic hyperventilation was not the effect of disease, but the cause of disease. Like I said, totally, completely bass-ackwards. Based on this NF2, he began treating patients with all manner of disease with, he maintained, great effect. Number two, the one true cause of disease. 
The theory is that breathing slowly and shallowly through your nose will reverse chronic hyperventilation, which reverses the detrimental metabolic effects and cures or improves all disease. All. I doubt it. Based on simple prior probability, nose breathing would be as likely to affect postoperative scars, hypothyroidism, gingivitis, or pyelonephritis to pick four off the list of 150 diseases that this therapy is supposed to treat, it would be as likely as homeopathy or Reiki. It would, I think, be an excellent treatment of perplexed sclerosis, a disease that has defied all other interventions, conventional or otherwise. It is interesting to see how the term perplexed sclerosis has been copied throughout the Buteco breathing literature. I use literature ironically here. It would appear, according to one of the science-based medicine readers who is versed in Russian, to be a mistranslation of multiple sclerosis. They decided to call it perplexed sclerosis, and it has perpetuated itself through all the breathing literature of Buteco. I think it's quite amazing how no one seems to have bothered to go back and alter perplexed sclerosis into multiple sclerosis. They probably will do it now. Here, however, is room for pause. And I would say categorically that it doesn't work and can't work. And most of the clinical evaluations of Buteco have not been for perplexed sclerosis and other disease, but for asthma. Breathing exercises in general have no utility in asthma, at least for objective findings, and the Buteco method would appear to be no different. However, if you have ever seen anyone with a bad asthma attack, and the panic that ensues with difficulty breathing worsening the attack, you would not be surprised if patients do better given control over their asthma and breathing. Part of treating patients with severe shortness of breath is getting them to calm down and relax. Suffocating is not fun, and panic adds to that feeling. There may also be benefit from raising the CO2 in patients with asthma, though the effect is probably not clinically relevant, which what would happen if you were to breathe unnaturally more slowly, your CO2 might rise. Quote, there is in vitro animal evidence suggesting that low alveolar PCO2 causes bronchial constriction, while high CO2 acts directly on smooth muscle to cause bronchodilatation. There is also an in vivo animal evidence that hypocapnia increases airway resistance. In addition, there is support for the association between hypocapnia, low CO2, and bronchial constriction from experimental evidence in humans. I also note for a time my pulmonologists were fans of permissive hypercapnia on hard to ventilate patients, and I confess to not paying much attention. The various modes of vital sign support seem to come and go in the ICU. They still have not figured out optimal pressors, as best I can tell, and it depends on the current state of the art. And since it is not an active part of my practice, I defer to others as to the benefits and the risk. Me find bug, you know? However, reading the literature on the PubMeds would suggest an improvement in subjective symptoms, a decrease in medication use, but no physiologic alterations. Quote, no significant change in FEV1, that's the forced expiratory volume in one second, 
which is a measure of asthma, was recorded in either group. The BBT group exhibited a reduction in inhaled corticosteroid use by 50% and beta-2 agonist use by 85% at six months from baseline. In the control group, inhaled steroid use was unchanged and beta-2 agonist use was reduced 37% from baseline. End of quote. And there's little support for the proposed mechanism of increasing the CO2 as the cause of improvement. It is classic placebo effect. The patient believing there is an improvement when in fact none is occurring. And as usual, I have mixed feelings. Giving people control over their disease will make them feel better, especially when the disease has a strong emotional component, such as occurs with the feeling of the inability to breathe. Doing so under what appears to be false premises, I don't know. I get the impression that people are more willing to live with whatever their pulmonary function is and, because of the control, less likely to use medications inappropriately or as needed. I suspect it is not the specific intervention, but shifting to a sense of control over your disease that is important. Quote, Where meta-analysis could be done, they provided evidence of benefit from yoga, buteco breathing technique, and physiotherapist-led breathing training in improving asthma-related quality of life. Number four, divorced from known anatomy and physiology. For the most part, as mentioned, with the exception of reactive airways disease, there is no reason to suspect that the mighty 150 diseases, many of which were not lung-related, that Buteco thought were amenable to his therapy are caused in any way from chronic hyperventilation. It is the best example of mistaking cause and effect I have ever witnessed. Of course, I am old school. Respiration is for gas exchange and little else. No known physiology would lead to suspecting that mild chronic hypocapnia, even if it were present, would lead to any disease. Well, except for perplexed sclerosis. I have become enamored of perplexed sclerosis. It is a disease that does not even have an ICD-10 code, even though it is on many of the Buteco sites. So I can neither confirm nor deny its Butekian physiology. Five, lots of positive testimonials, minimal clinical trials for efficacy. As mentioned, a review of the PubMeds finds little meat on the bones of the assertion that the 150 are amenable to treatment by slow nose breathing. There are numerous testimonials on the interwebs reaffirming the credo that plural of anecdote is anecdotes, not data. Isn't credo a Star Wars character? Most concern asthma. Few other diseases are mentioned except in passing, but not passing gas. Some testifiers had a diminution in their kidney zones and their eczema got better. There was no testimonial I could find that mentioned improvement, however, in perplexed sclerosis, which has deeply saddened me. 6. Ironically, his work has never been fully accepted by his colleagues. Buteco has been ignored by the medical-industrial complex, and for good reason. He is wrong on basic principles, and there is a lack of proven efficacy for most of the mighty 150 diseases he allegedly treats. Why would you accept BS? 7. 
The American Heritage Dictionary defines irony as, quote, incongruity between what might be expected and what actually occurs. Since Buteco was wrong, there is no irony in his never being accepted by his colleagues, who, I am sure, prefer reality to fantasy in treating most diseases. Except, of course, for the dread, perplexed sclerosis. At least no one tries to alter blood pressure or pulse as an alternative treatment, although there is the imaginary taking of the pulse as part of the pseudo-diagnosis of traditional Chinese medicine. Half the vital signs at least seem to be safe from scam interventions, or so I hope. So the take home today? Don't treat a fever. Avoid perplexed sclerosis. And when you have to breathe, breathe normally, my friends. And that ends the 94th QuackCast. Don't forget, go online, write me glowing reviews, and if you really, really are nice, I'll send you a copy of the world's greatest peach cobbler recipe, which is pretty much, I think, just about ready. <laughs>